I'm Sam McLaren Fahey, and this is You Survived, Now What? Each week, we hear from a survivor, we learn their story, and we ask them the question, now what? Today's guest is an author and survivor, Nadia Muevich. Nadia was just a teenager when war broke out in her home of Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1992. Just as a warning, Nadia talks about the life and death of war. Also, if you're like me and don't have any knowledge of weapons, you will hear Nadia speak a lot about shells and shelling. Shells are essentially bombs that are just shot like bullets. And as you will hear, shelling became the new normal for life in this war. I survived. I survived. I survived. Now what? My name is Nadia Mujagic. I was born and raised in Sarajevo, Bosnia and Herzegovina, where it used to be the former Yugoslavia back in the late 1970s. Back at the time I was born, the country was consisted of six different republics, and it was led by Josip Broz Tito. And the country was very diverse as far as religions and nationalities. I lived in Sarajevo with my family. So I, I have a, an older sister. So we came from a Muslim family, even though we didn't really practice religion that much because the country was communist slash socialist. So we couldn't really practice religion that much. So we lived in a very small neighborhood across from the airport, Sarajevo airport. The neighborhood was very diverse. Back at the time, Bosnia consisted of majority of Muslims, which was like 45%, and the rest of it was Christian Orthodox, which are considered Serbs, and Catholics, which are considered Croats. So when I was growing up, those differences didn't really matter. The only thing that really mattered was whether you were a good neighbor or not. So the emphasis on the religion was not important at all while I was growing up. However, when Tito died in 1980, everything started to go downhill and our Serb neighbors, or the Serb politicians, I would say, began this propaganda of trying to sort of brainwash their own people of believing that Muslims wanted a homogeneous country of Bosnia. So in order to be preemptive, they decided to attack us, which led up to a civil war. So I just want to tell you a little about my family. Like I said, I have an older sister and, you know, my parents lived a very modest life like almost everybody in the former Yugoslavia because it was a socialist country. We didn't really travel much outside of the country, not only because maybe we couldn't afford it, but it wasn't really, we weren't given many opportunities to travel outside of Yugoslavia, but we like went to Croatia every year and we would like make a lot of friends who came from the other parts of Yugoslavia. So we had like our own world that was very happy and beautiful and I think we had a very solid community in our neighborhood and it didn't matter whether, like I said before, you were Serb or Muslim or Croat. What happened is when, when the Civil War began, there, there was a lot of confusion about who the enemy was because we really didn't believe or we couldn't believe that war could break out in Sarajevo, such a multinational, diverse city. So in the meantime, so these Serb politicians were building propaganda, sort of like spreading the hatred and, you know, fear to their own people, thinking that Muslims wanted something that would degrade their, you know, living or well-being. So they, they basically started a civil war. For, for the record, we never back at home said that we wanted a homogeneous country. 
Muslim country. Never. I've never heard that from my parents, my, my grandmothers, our neighbors, our Muslim neighbors, our Muslim friends. That was not part of the agenda of the Muslim people at all. So what happened is that the Serbs invented the story of Serb politicians in order to scare their own people and brainwash them against the Muslim people. My, my Serb neighbor trying to kill me because of this invented story inside, and they believe that I shouldn't exist. When you're in the war, your only goal is to survive. So when the war started, I was 14 years old. As far as like how abrupt it came, I would say that it was sort of gradual and in building that propaganda. So the Serbian politicians really began spreading that propaganda in the late 80s, I would say. And so they started the war in Slovenia, which is like the northern part of the country. It was part of Yugoslavia. And then they moved down to Croatia where the war lasted for about a year and a half. And once the war stopped there, they moved to Bosnia. So Bosnia declared independence on March 1st. And shortly after, so I would say April 5th, so I, I grew up in Sarajevo, right? What they did is they stole all the weapons from, from the military or Yugoslav army. And they took over the entire uh, you know, artillery and all of the resources that the Yugoslav army had. And they positioned them, themselves in the hills and the mountains surrounding Sarajevo. Starting April 5th, the city was under siege. We saw people like leaving the city. You know, the airport was flooded with people trying to, to flee the country because some people actually knew what was going to happen. My parents just had no idea. And, you know, being a teenager, I just didn't know what to expect. I, I didn't understand the whole political situation or the background of it because I think I was too young and I was a teenager and I really didn't care so much about what was happening. You know, I lived in my own world. I was still in primary school and I was trying, you know, I started smoking when I was 12 years old and that was my world basically. So we lived across from the airport and so we were the first building that faced the airport. And one, one morning we woke up and we saw these things move in, move into the airport and, you know, they were moving slowly on the street. We waved to the soldiers and one of them gave us the middle finger back. And we were like, why? why? <laughs> you know, we're trying to be friendly. So my parents didn't really know what the military was doing there or what the army was doing there. And for a second, my mom thought that they were there to protect us because there was no suspicion that the Yugoslav army would be taken so easily by one nation. So a few days later, they started to shell, you know, one of the neighbors across from the airport called Hrasica. And we just watched it and we just couldn't believe there were shells falling on the neighborhood. It's just, it was, it was very chaotic. We just didn't know what to anticipate or like what was coming next, you know, what, what, what is the next thing to expect? In my memoir, I said there were no sirens like, you know, some wars have to indicate, oh, there's gonna be shooting. Like there was no war declared. Like Serbs didn't say, oh, we're going to attack you tomorrow. They just did, they just did. And so, as far as my parents and my family, we, we had no place to go. We didn't know anybody outside of Bosnia. So we were somewhat, quote unquote, stuck in our circumstances. 
complicated part of Sarajevo is that it wasn't just Muslims living in there. So I have to say that there were a lot of Serbs that did not fall for the propaganda. So, you know, a lot of them, as we call them during the war, were loyal to their city, so to speak. And so they didn't, they decided to stay in the city and fight, you know, along with their Muslim neighbors. I think that's the complicated thing. So if when they were shelling, they weren't just shelling Muslims, they were shelling Croats and Serbs. Everybody was dying, you know? I mean, when a shell falls on the street, it doesn't really choose a Muslim versus a Croat versus a Serb, you know, there's no such thing. They didn't really spread the message. It was like, you're either on our side or you're not. And if you're not, you can stay in the city and you may die. I think that was the message. But for people who knew what was going to happen, they fled on time. A few days after they shelled Hrasnica, the neighborhood across from the airport, they started shelling us heavily. And so that was the first time that I, that I heard a shell up close. And that's when the first time I felt like this incredible fear. And I just didn't know what a shell does. I heard the sound. It's like this incredible, it's hard to explain in words, but this incredible sound that echoes through your body. One of the nights that they shelled us, they ended up burning a couple of apartments in our subdivision, uh, you know, two doors down. And that night we tried to extinguish the fire and it was like so dramatic and it was like in the middle of the night. So finally by the morning the fire was done. But, you know, when we woke up, we were like, how did this happen? A war began within hours, basically. And so now we were in a war zone, nowhere to go. We were confused about who was shooting at us. Like, who, who are these people, you know? Like, they speak the same language. Like, how could it be? They were our neighbors. As the war moved on, or as the days went by, it was getting worse and worse. Um, so my aunt suggested that we stay at her place. So she lived in a neighborhood called Dabrinya, and it was adjacent to our neighborhood. And so to be safer from the shells, she thought that the kids would be more protected living in, that, in her neighborhood. So my sister and I left one day, shortly after that, those two buildings or two apartments were burned down. And so we ended up being there for the time being. And my parents left behind because they thought that, oh, they had to preserve their home. So my mom called us one day in panic and fear, saying that our next door neighbor was shot by a sniper from the airport. And he was just like standing nearby and he shot the kid. And his mom came out of the window and she started saying, why did you kill my son? Kill me too. And she was crying and desperate. I didn't say this in my book, but we found out that she committed suicide by jumping off the bridge later. And that was her only... Yeah, so that was, that was her only life, you know, that was her only source of joy and happiness. And she lost it, you know. So, so my parents decided to stay with my aunt, who, who lived in Dabrinya 5. So Dabrinya is basically separated by five distinct parts, and each one was named accordingly. So we lived in Dabrinya 3 with my aunt, 
And then my parents decided to live my mother's sister in Dublin at five. On June 17th, we found out that our neighborhood was taken by the Serbs. And we also learned that they killed a lot of people on the spot, the Muslims. And we learned that there was there were a few Serbian neighbors who actually came up with a list of who to execute right on the spot. So they came in like at 5 a.m. This paramilitary group called Eagles or Orlov in Bosnia. And so they came with tanks and on foot and they started screaming, telling people to come out of their buildings. So people did and, you know, they separated women and children from men. Like I said, like some were killed on the spot just because they were Muslim. There was no other reason, you know, even though these people were innocent, they did nothing to deserve that or to you know, warrant the painful death for nothing. And so they were sent to concentration camps. So they, they had these trucks and they sent the people off and the other trucks were used to basically loot every single apartment that was in the neighborhood. At one point we heard that it was one of the richest neighborhoods in Sarajevo. You know, it was really beautiful. I mean, when I was growing up, it was like, it was bustling with children and the neighbors would like take care of each other. And, and all of a sudden it fell to the enemy's arms and I just realizing that we actually escaped all of that was sort of like a miracle to us, you know, it was just a fate. But who knows, like if we had been able to walk back to the home, to the house, maybe we would have ended up like with the same sort of fate. We moved to Dublin at five. So my parents told my sister and I, they wanted all of us to be in the same place. So they told us, well, you, you need to come here and we're all going to stay at my sister's place. So we went to my aunt's place and the day after, it just, I don't know what happened, but suddenly we couldn't even peep out of the window. The reason is that we were basically surrounded by the Serbs who were sitting on a hill, like a thousand feet away from our building. And there, there was a Serbian village adjacent to our neighborhood. If you went outside, they would shoot you. At night, like they would shell us heavily. And so one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that during the siege in Sarajevo, we didn't have electricity or running water or heat the entire war. I mean, there were times when they would like give us electricity like two hours per day, but like in the beginning, there was no electricity at all. So in the beginning, we would use candles, you know, just we can see each other, but we ran out of candles. So we had to like be creative and come up with like new devices so we can actually walk around the apartment and see each other. It was called candela, which is something I had never heard in my life. So it's like basically a shoelace that you put through a, a cork and then you put the whole thing in oil and that's what burns and, and it was awful and it smelled like like old oil <laughs> and it's just 
you know, it produced this like heavy black smoke and it was just terrible. But we were coming up with ways to survive basically. So the stairs were right up on the hill and in the village nearby. And so they would shell us every single day. And there was one morning where they dropped about 500 shells on the streets nearby. And so we, we went to the basement just to make sure that sharpnel doesn't come near us or doesn't kill us or, you know, a bullet doesn't come through the window and kills one of us. So the basement is the place where we would usually frequent because that was the safest place. It was under the ground. Like we were getting humanitarian aid. But prior to that, my uncle was very resourceful and he had he had kept a lot of food. For some reason, like they accumulated all this food that was able to feed all of us for a couple of months. But even then, like eventually, like we were running out of meat and flour and yeast itself. So my mom had to like use the same yeast or the same like dough with yeast and she would just recycle it. So for every subsequent bread, she would use that dough with yeast and mix it with other flour. But like the bread was so sour. And every single time like she bakes bread, like, oh, it just tasted awful. <laughs> you know, so it doesn't, it doesn't taste like bread anymore, but we had to eat something, you know? And I, I think other people were starving a lot more than we did. Like I said, like my uncle, I think it was just his personality, like he knew what he was doing or how to prepare for logistics. He preserved the meat by putting it all in salt, you know, so that the food would like, not all of the salt would come off, so it would taste like super salty at times. But it would, that is the survival mode. We just had to succumb to the circumstances and go with it. The Serbs control like when to shut off water. And so because the, the water source was in the part of Sarajevo that was controlled by Serbs. Because of the low altitude, we more often than not, we had it in the basement. So we would have to go to the basement, down to the basement and, you know, fill water with or fill uh, bottles and stuff with water and then drag them upstairs and then go back again. Even though like the water was, it was very small, but you know, it was something. So eventually my mother made a hole on the gutter so that we could collect rain. And so that rain was used for the bathroom mainly. You know, in the winter, like the pipes would freeze in the basement, so we couldn't even get water even there. So what happened eventually is that Bosnian army built a water well, you know, where they thought that water would come out. So in the middle of the field, like there was a well and people would go there and they would fetch water. And sometimes they would get shelled and some people would die gathering water. So it was... It was hard, like, providing for yourself and your family, you're gonna come out alive or not. It's like a, a daily unpredictable thing to live through. What's most difficult is that there's no food. I mean, there's limited amount amounts of food. And so we basically ration every day. And so we, we would get like these small amounts of food every day. And every day I would go to bed hungry. And I was like a teenager, <laughs> you know, I wanted to eat. So I was growing up, I was, yeah, there was no water, no, no electric electricity, you no know, food. 
I think we realized at one point that the war was going to last for quite some time. We did not get any help from the rest of Europe or the United States. My understanding is that there were a lot of negotiations taking place at, the, at that time for like ceasefire or like lifting embargo for weapons for Bosnians in order for them to defend themselves. But none of that was really successful or happening as it should. So we realized, you know, the war is going on, and so we might as well live like during normal circumstances. So in 1993, we found out that the schools were starting to reopen. So I was going to go into the high school. I was transitioning into high school or the ninth grade. So because most of high schools were located downtown Sarajevo, we heard that Dubinia was actually planning on opening up high schools in, in the neighborhood itself at a very small scale. So they decided that classes would take place in, in the basement and the children would gather in a basement and the teachers would come from different parts of Dobrynia and lecture. The lectures were very minimal. It wasn't well organized or we didn't have resources. We didn't have textbooks. We didn't even have pens and pencils or notebooks, you know. And so the Serbs whose home we moved into, they had like two little daughters and they were like small enough not to go to school yet. So we didn't find any sort of no, you know, notebooks or textbooks or anything like that. We tried to normalize the circumstances by living a life like we would during peacetime. So we started school and as it progressed, I think teachers took it more seriously. We started getting textbooks from the Soros Foundation. Like they started printing these textbooks for us. And then eventually we moved, like they opened up a building for the high school that they opened up in Dubnia. You know, like the electricity was still on and off and mostly off for those times. And so I didn't feel motivated to study like, you know, with a candle or I was cool most of the time. So it was really hard to like hold my book while I'm freezing. You kind of learn how to live through those circumstances and do your best. My favorite subject in school was history. So much so that I ended up getting a degree in history. I spent a lot of time studying wars and the effects of wars, but I, and I imagine most with the same education, never learned about the daily lives of civilians living through those wars. We think of soldiers in combat and civilians who were captured, but I don't know many stories of people who stayed in their city and had to adjust to this new normal of war. Events leading up to war can be gradual, but they can be shockingly fast. Many of us learned in March of this year just how quickly the world can change. Nadia and her family had survived two years of war at this point, and in 1994, things began to shift. I think there was an agreement for ceasefire for the time being in Sarajevo, so we, we didn't get shelled as much in 1994. My mother was called to, into work, like in May in 1994. And so her work building was not that far from where we lived. And so she would go to work every single day. You know, trams, public transportation started to work in 94. So that kind of gave us hope. And then my mother, I don't know where she got seeds from, but she started like growing vegetables in a, like a small little yard that she claimed behind our building. <laughs> so we had like onion and spinach and tomatoes. And it was, that was like amazing. 
because we had not seen any of that during the war. So, I mean, the humanitarian aid was pretty subpar, I would say, and most of the food that we got was like beans, rice, flour, just the basic stuff. But we didn't have milk or meat or eggs. None of the fresh produce was really, you know, given to us during the war. Like some of the stuff that we ate was like lunch packages that came from like the Vietnamese war, or at least that's what we heard. And it was like the food was horrible. <laughs> so, I mean, to have like the vegetables for a change was normalcy came to our lives again, you know. We heard that the Bosnian army was formed on April 15th. Shortly after my neighborhood was taken over, the Bosnian army attacked the, the, the Serbs on the hill. And so they finally took over the hill and we were freed to actually walk on the street because they couldn't see us any longer. And that really helped a lot. Davrinia bred a lot, a lot of deaths. And I would say it's like probably one of the worst neighborhoods in the entire war in Sarajevo because every single day somebody died. After the neighborhood was sort of freed from the hill and we could walk on the streets again, my uncle decided that we should probably have a new home because we lost our home. And it was quite ironic because we were considered refugees now in the city that many past generations of both of my parents lived in. For us, it was almost unheard of. So we decided, you know, it would be best for us to have our home. I guess we were eligible for one because we were considered refugees. There was a, an empty apartment that belonged to Serbs. You know, in the beginning of the war, they fled. And so the apartment was now empty. And so sometime in July, we moved there. And it was just like, the feeling was terrible, like entering somebody's apartment that you're going to call your home. Everything was left intact. It's just the furniture was unappealing. <laughs> you know, it was dirty. And my mother cried, I remember. It was just, ugh. It's like, okay, well, this is my new home and I've got no choice in the matter and I had to accept it. So everything that was happening during the war was basically, you have to accept it because you have no choice. And it will make you angry and sad and desperate at times, but that was your only choice, to survive and to accept the circumstances. And you know, I would compare it to the COVID pandemic. We have to accept the fact that we have to wash our hands, we have to wear a mask, we have to be distancing from other people. It becomes a new normal. And eventually the war became a new normal. I was recently asked, like, how did you find joy during the war? So my joy was, you know, eventually I started playing volleyball and, you know, it gave me a lot of mental relief. And this was like during the days that it was quiet and it was like almost towards the end of the war. But I gave that as one of the examples. The Bosnian people were so resilient. They used sense of humor to live through the war. And there was a, a sense of community. We, we were all like one, you know, we felt like we were all best friends and there was no judgment cast upon anybody, you know. It was just, we were helping each other. We were talking to each other. And I think that's what you have to do to survive. You, you can't turn against your neighbor. When we found our home, people kept dying in the, in the neighborhood. And so my sister and I witnessed the same uncle who gave us the apartment dying. A shell fell on the street 
and actually two shells fell on the street and one of them fell on the lap of a man who was sitting in a car on the street and he died instantly and the other shell might have wounded i don't know how many people but i know for a fact that my uncle was in the street and he was hit by sharpnel in the heart and the woman standing behind us also on the first floor in front of the er office or the er you know she on her on her way to the hospital she died so they tried to like save my my uncle and they tried to send him to the sarajevo hospital but unfortunately he did not survive the attack and so there was another thing that came unexpectedly like every other death during the war and unfortunately during the war there's no time to mourn there's no time to feel sad as you would during the normal circumstances you know because well of course the same day or the following day we got shelled heavily again and that's your focus like how do you survive you know are you going to be next like what's the story here am i going to survive is like the the daily theme of your life but the thing is we had to move on from from these atrocities and you just hope for the best every single day what led up to the end of the war is a little i would say complicated because while the world is trying to intervene a lot of the uh, politicians outside of bosnia or former yugoslavia didn't feel like this was their call for example the British and French politicians at the time, and even the UN counselor, they didn't think that they should intervene at all because they didn't care, I think. That's ultimately uh, what we learned, you know, after the war. But what happened is July 11th, 1995, the city in East Bosnia that was considered a safe haven named Srebrenica fell into the Serbs' army. And in two days, they killed more than 8,000 men and, and boys, and they raped thousands of women in those two days. This is considered the genocide or ethnic cleansing as the Serbs wanted to pursue the entire war. And so they, they succeeded finally. And I think that was an eye opener to the rest of the world. And they were finally decided to do something to intervene. As far as Sarajevo, so I, I didn't realize, but now that I'm reading up on like some, some of the political background of the war, I didn't know that Sarajevo was considered a safe haven or one of the safe havens among seven during the war in Bosnia. And I'm thinking to myself, how's that? Like, I wasn't feeling safe. <laughs> We were sitting in a living room one day. It was my mom's birthday. And all of a sudden we see planes flying in the air, which we had not seen during the entire war. And it was a little bit scary in the beginning because we didn't know what it was or the sound of planes was honestly like so forgotten. Like I hadn't seen or heard a plane for three and a half years. Suddenly we see like bombs being dropped on the surrounding mountains and hills. And it was NATO bombing Sarajevo, uh, I mean, Serbs' positions. And so they were basically destroying all their artillery. And so that was what led to the end of the war. And so shortly after, in November, the Dayton Agreement was signed, which means that all the politicians agreed to separate Bosnia into two distinct parts. So one of them is called Republika Srpska, and 51% of the land will belong to Bosnian Muslims and Croats, 
and it will be called Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. And then the 49% of the land will belong to Bosnian Serbs and the land will be named Republika Srpska. Those negotiations took literally years. It was finalized in November or December by signing the agreement in Paris. And so that was finally the end of it. They stopped shelling us. We finally had electricity and running water and heat and stores began to open with fresh produce. And so shortly after, everything went back to normal, even though obviously the war aftermath was like everywhere. After the peace agreement was signed, my family and I stayed in Sarajevo. And so we couldn't go back home because my neighborhood had belonged to the Serbs up until like March 1996. And so they had to give it up. And that process was called reintegration of Sarajevo. So they had to like give, give uh, back the neighborhood to the Bosnian Muslims. We went there like right at, shortly after the neighborhood was freed. And when we entered the neighborhood for the first time, it was like a wasteland. It was like a zombie land. Every single building was pretty much damaged. And some, some of them like all the way to the foundation. I mean, there were many holes in them. And it was just a destruction that you, you can only see in movies, you know. We went to our apartment and when we entered, like we realized everything was stolen. Like there was nothing, absolutely nothing. They even like took windowsills and bathtubs and sinks and kitchen cabinets. And you know, my father had bought a car the year before the war, like that was gone. Pretty much the neighborhood was like completely empty. So a lot of humanitarian aid came in like rebuilding the city. They started rebuilding the city. So our neighborhood was not rebuilt until, or like restored until I would say 1998. I moved to the United States in 97. My parents stayed behind and they moved back to their old apartment in 1998. Even though it wasn't the same, they were like in a place that they lived for most of their lives. Nadia was a normal teenager in the early 90s, and in the blink of an eye, her entire world changed. Her neighbors had marked her for death, and she had survived. Nearly 100,000 people lost their lives during the Bosnian War, and more than 2 million people were displaced. Countless others were wounded or sexually assaulted. After signing the peace treaty, the country and its new structure began to rebuild. Nadia moved to the United States in 1997 to begin another type of rebuilding. She was a survivor. Now what? The thing about the end of the war or its aftermath is that because you lived in the war and you were in the survival instinct mode, you just don't have time to process feelings or emotions. So they emerge as something else right after the war and I didn't get diagnosed with PTSD until like 2006 but I in retrospect I really do think that it kicked in for me right after the war so what I was feeling on a daily basis was like one day I felt rage that I had no control over you know I, I was screaming at people I was like so angry all the time and then the next day I would feel like this 
deep depression. And they were like switching back and forth and I just didn't know what to do about them. So like during the war, you hear the zooms of shells and you're like, oh God, here's another one. But then like right after the war, I heard a car on the street and I, I actually ducked like under, under the table because I thought it was a shell. And during the entire war, I had not done that one time. And I think that those were like the first signs of PTSD. And I didn't realize, I didn't even know what PTSD was at the time. What war does to you is that you lose a sense of humanity, like you lose faith in humanity. It's like, how could my neighbors want me dead? Why would they want me dead? I didn't do anything to them, even to this day. Like, how, how could people do such terrible things to others? And so once you lose faith in humanity, you lose trust in people. And which is part of the question, like, now what? Like, how do you restore that faith in humanity? How do you start trusting people? How do you know who to trust? And through my experiences, I find that, first of all, talking about your experiences is extremely important because not only do you get that out of your system, but you also connect with people. And one of the things that the person with trauma has to do is accept his or her circumstances. For the longest time, like, I thought, well, I'm so broken. Like, that's not the point. It's fine to be broken. You can't be a perfect human being. That, that is part of being human, is that you're not perfect. And so accepting your circumstances or accepting your life as it is or as it was is just as important as, you know, living it. <laughs> And it took me a while. It really took me a long time because what PTSD does is like these flashbacks, you have these dreams, you relive those circumstances on a daily basis. So it's, it's really hard to move on. My advice to people with trauma is that you have to surround yourself with good people and you have to cultivate that love and trust from them. And I think most importantly, as, as a trauma survivor, you have to accept and love yourself. You know, everybody, I'm, I was surrounded by people who never even knew where Bosnia was, <laughs> never mind understood what I went through, you know. And there were times when I would like start telling people how I felt or, and then they would be like, oh, sorry, I gotta, you know, like in the middle of a party, if I tell them my story, they'll, oh, you know, I, I'm gonna go get a drink, I'll be right back. And they never come back, you know, and I'm like, I feel so lonely in all of this. It's like, this is awful. So I guess I better not be telling my story because it freaks people out. People need to be free to talk about their feelings and emotions and what precipitated them, you know, or what, what to do with them, you know. I didn't think anybody was interested in hearing me, you know. And so I felt like I was completely, completely isolated. And it was difficult because you're trying to like act like a normal person and oh yeah, I'm like you, you know. I grew up in this like nice little American suburb with a nice house and, you know, travel all, all around the world. It's like, that's not me. I'm not your average American teenager. I'm not, I'm not that person. I can't change myself completely. It's like, this is who I am. I still feel like I'm not completely understood. And I don't think my rage and depression are there anymore. 
I do have some insecurities or lack of trust, you know, in people. I'm very careful about who I get close to. I prefer to be in my shell most of the time because that's what's safe. Now that I'm married, I found someone I can really, really trust. You know, I just feel like my life got for the better. But even like if somebody does something that I, it doesn't make me feel good, I just shun them like, I, like, how dare you, you know? And so that's not the best attitude, I know. But it's just, I, I do think it's part of what I went through in life. I'm trying to change that. I give people a chance to be themselves also. Everybody has their own insecurities and anxieties. And we all go through a lot of suffering. Life is not easy. You know, my book describes a lot more and a lot more detail how it felt to, to be in, the, in those circumstances and, you know, how it felt to be a victim of those shocking events that we really didn't want to take part in at all. So the reason why I decided to write about the book, well, first of all, it took about 23 years to finish it. I mean, there were times I just couldn't go back to it because it was too painful to relive those experiences. But ultimately I decided, you know, it would be a good story to get out there to... First of all, I know that a lot of Americans were not aware of what was happening in the Bosnia war. Now that I'm like sort of removed from that experience, I realized that there are a lot of sort of academics that are denying the genocides that were taking place in Bosnia. So for one, I thought that it was really important to put these facts together in a more creative way and counter those deniers and tell the story like it was. Like, yes, there was a genocide in Bosnia. Yes, I did experience all of this. You can't tell me that it didn't happen. The other main drive was that I think it will benefit me personally. I think the more we tell the trauma, the more healing we experience, you know? And I think it's not just, now that the book is out, I'm very grateful for this podcast because I'm able to tell my story, not just through words or in writing, but also in speaking. And just tell the people how it felt to be in a war. And also I'm hoping that through my experiences, people will learn not to hate not to pro promote the propaganda, the nationalism that took place in the former Yugoslavia. Because it's, it was really extreme nationalism that led to a civil war for nothing, right? Ultimately, we realized that nobody gained anything significant from it. So it was just like a, you know, a bunch of politicians who wanted to gain power or get rich from it. But, you know, as a result, lots of people suffer from it. So my story will tell you that a war is pointless. I actually got a review recently, and the, re the book reviewer indicated that there's really nothing extraordinary about the war. It's just, it really diminishes the ordinary. And that's what it is. It's, you're not gonna get heroes all over the place from, you know, living in a war. And if you call it like, just living through the circumstances her heroic, that we all came out as heroes. They all came out as heroes of an unnecessary war. Nadia's book is called 10,000 Shells and Counting, and I cannot recommend it enough. So many of us live in a world where we think things like this just couldn't happen here. But Nadia's story is an important lesson in why that is never true. 
We will add a link to Nadia's book in the show notes and share photos of her experience on our social media pages. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Survived, Now What? Please share the show with a friend or in your feeds. And if you are connected to the show through a specific episode, I highly recommend going back and listening to the rest. These are incredible stories from incredible humans. This show is hosted and produced by me with music from Evan No and cover art by my rad dad, Max McLaren. You can find us on Facebook at You Survived Now What and Instagram at YSNW Podcast. If you'd like to share your story, you can leave us a voice message right on our website, anchor.fm forward slash You Survived Now What. Tune in again next week to laugh with us, cry with us, and survive with us. And remember to never tell anyone it could be worse. I survived. I survived. I survived. Now what? We all came out as heroes.